invite you to turn in the Word of God this morning to the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon. We return here for our communion today as the message that the Lord has for us. Song of Solomon chapter 4 is where we are. We haven't looked at this since the beginning of December. But I trust the Lord will again use it for its purpose and intention that it will sweeten our spirits to sit at the Lord's table encourage us as we gather in this fashion. I'm going to take time to read all of this fourth chapter just to bring it before our attention, all the contents of it, but we'll be focusing upon verses 8 through 11. I trust the Lord will help us. We Let us read the word of God. Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 1. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes within thy locks. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. Thy teeth are like a flock of sheep that are even shorn, which came up from the washing, whereof every one bear twins, and none is barren among them. Thy lips are like a thread of scarlet, Thy speech is comely. Thy temples are like a piece of a pomegranate within thy locks. Thy neck is like the tower of David, builded for an armory, whereon there hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Thy two breasts are like two young roes that are twins, which feed among the lilies. Until the day break and the shadows flee away, I will get me to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense." Thou art all fair, my love, there is no spot in thee. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, with me from Lebanon. Look from the top of Amna, from the top of Shinar, and Hermon, from the lion's dens, from the mountains of the leopards. Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes, with one chain of thy neck. How fair is thy love, my sister, my spouse. How much better is thy love than wine, and the smell of thine ointments than all spices. Thy lips, O my spouse, drop as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under thy tongue, and the smell of thy garments is like the smell of Lebanon. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse, a spring shut up, a fountain sealed. Thy plants are an orchard of pomegranates, with pleasant fruits, camphor and spikenard, spikenard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes, with all the chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters, and streams from Lebanon. Awake, O north wind, and come thou south, blow upon my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden, and eat his pleasant fruits. Amen. May the Lord bless his word to us, and give us the light of His Spirit this morning as we consider it together and as we prepare our hearts to sit at the Lord's table. Let us pray. Let's all seek the Lord. Our God and Father, our hearts have been encouraged already today just to consider the themes that we have been singing. And we do pray that the Spirit of God would descend upon our hearts today. 
Oh, that we would see the... Oh, that all the skills. Oh, God, what a difference it makes when we see Jesus. There's so many hindering aspects, hindering things in our lives, circumstances, concerns, worries about ourselves, worries about others, about the past, about the future, about material things, about relationships. God, our hearts have much that they can be weighed down by. But we need the liberty of the gospel to come afresh to us this morning, that we would see and behold the Lamb taking our sin, bearing our iniquity, and all that when we sit at the table and eat of this bread and drink of this cup, that we would have the privilege of his presence, that his word would be in our hearts with power, and that we would know something of the sweet and sanctifying influence of thy word upon all of our lives. Oh God, we're far from what we need to be, and except for thy divine grace, we will never be what we ought to be. So come and take us in thine arms, and shepherd us through the word, and speak to every heart with freshness and power, and give to this preacher that unction, that help from heaven, that promised Holy Ghost, that the word would run into every heart. Hear these are prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've spent the last year or so going through the Song of Solomon, at least to this point, we have been seeking to consider it in the light of the, the communion that exists between Christ and His church. The allegory that is given, of course, is that of a relationship. We are brought to consider a man of tremendous wealth and power, a king, sovereign, and then a young woman of humble connections. When you go through the book, you see something of the development of the relationship, as is the case for all relationships. It has its stages. There is, of course, the period of courtship, then you have the marriage, and then the testing and strengthening of the marriage. You can see that even as you, you can divide the book up in different ways, but certainly in that way, there's something of that reflected. And from the beginning of the book through to chapter 3, verse 5, you have really language of courtship, and then from chapter 3, verse 6, right through to the beginning of chapter 5, you have that which surrounds the marriage, not just the marriage itself, which is the latter part of chapter 3, but even just what follows immediately that particular time. And then the testing and strengthening of the marriage from chapter 5 through to the end of the book. And we have come as far as the middle of chapter 4. We're considering from verse 8 through verse 11 this morning, where we have the bridegroom speaking. Now, chapter 4 brings us to the first account of him actually speaking directly. We have his words back in chapter 2, verse 10 and following, where she records what he said, My beloved spake and said unto me, Rise up, my love, and so on. But in chapter 4, we have him speaking. 
And we considered at the beginning of December when we looked at this portion again, the, the words of verse 1 through 7, where he is enunciating the, the fairness and the beauty of his bride. And you can see even in those verses how sandwiched in all the contents there, and again, we, we sought our best to, to pull out the themes and the truths that were in all of this language but at the very heart of it, at least, you can see from verse 1 and verse 7 that the focus is on her fairness. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair, verse 1 and verse 7. Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. And so we focused on this position of the church, that the people of God are viewed in this fashion by the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are viewed, therefore, legally as in union with Him. They don't have a natural, inherent beauty. Their beauty is one that they have received by reason of their relationship to Christ Himself. And this brings, then, every child of God this morning into a perspective of what we are in Christ. And there is a place for bemoaning our sin. There's a place for daily lamenting our unchristlikeness. There's a place for confession of sin. There's a place for acknowledging how far short we fall, every one of us, on a daily basis. But there's also a place for the child of God to have his mind and heart filled with considerations of what they are through Christ by reason of their union to Him. And so when we come to communion... And again, I say it, that when we sit at the Lord's table, the one focus of my heart is to reflect this intimacy of fellowship that the people of God enjoy with Jesus Christ. We're not just here because this is what we do. We're not to carry on through our lives simply nodding our head at the right time and being able to say all the right things and and try to live in such a fashion that externally presents the fact that we're Christian and not some other religion or some other sect or whatever. But this is about an intimacy, beloved. If we miss this, we miss the desire of our God as He communicates to us His longing to have a sense of, of real intimacy with His people. And some may laugh at the language. They may consider it somewhat humorous that, that God would, would correlate the human relationship that is enjoyed between a man and a woman in marriage, that it seems to have no correlation with Christ and His people, but such that view that have no understanding of the sweet intimacy that the people of God should have with their God. Again, I, I think it's helpful at times for us to understand that many of the things we take for granted in life only exist in life because they had a purpose of teaching us something about our God. Christ did not look at the world and think to himself that water has something to reflect about himself and then say, I am the living water. He didn't look at the world and think, well, look, the, the people eat bread to sustain them. I'm going to take bread. I'm going to apply that to myself and say, I am the bread of God. He puts bread, he makes those made in his image to be those that, that are dependent on sustenance on a daily basis. There are creatures in this world that can go for months, yea, even years, 
without taking any nutrition. And the Lord could have made us like that too, but He did not. He made us, by and large, to be almost on a daily basis dependent upon taking in nutrition, dependent upon water, because He he, he wants us to see what we are and how we are to relate to Him. And so He puts water, He puts bread, and He fashions us and shapes us so that we are dependent on these things nearly every day. And the same is for marriage. It's not just a convenient thing for God to say, well, I can draw from this relationship that, that has come about through society and I can make application there. No, He put man in a place where actually He would, by and large, for the most part, need a helper and to be joined to one individual and brought together in one flesh and to live out life together in an intimacy and a connection that is unlike any other relationship on earth. He put that there so we would understand the relationship we have with Him. Make sure you get the order right. Make sure as you see the things that He utilizes and points to that we don't mix up the order and and I think that will help us then to see He is put marriage into our experience because there are these truths that it points to and helps us to grasp. Our God is not a distant, impersonal God. He's not someone who's just there like the deists consider. He winds up the world and just, just lets it go like a clock and then sits back as everything unfolds. But He is involved And he is guiding the hearts and lives of his people. And he wants them to know him. As we come then to chapter 4, verse 8, we're seeing more of, of what the bridegroom has to say about his bride. And there are, even as application, you see the expression of the Lord in this way. And as a husband, I was convicted thinking about, well, I'm called to love my wife as Christ loves the church. And the Lord has no hesitation in expressing His love for His people. Sometimes we can be hesitant to be free with our speech to our wives, telling them how we love them and appreciate them. But if we are to be truly Christ-like, we will not be like that. We will speak to our wives And the way the Lord speaks about His church, which is remarkably revealing. The verses that we consider this morning will show us the beauty that adorns the church, how the faith of the church stimulates the love of Christ for her, and how willing He is to express His love and make it plainly known. So we're thinking then this morning of Christ's feelings for the church, Christ's feelings for the church. And note first with me that he is concerned for her safety. He is concerned for her safety. Verse 8. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse. With me from Lebanon. Look from the top of Amna, from the top of Shinar, and Hermon, from the lion's dens, and from the mountains of the leopards. There's some debate over really whether it is best expressed that she is coming with him or coming to him. 
And you may get bogged down again in trying to figure out, well, 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 what does it mean by using Lebanon? And why is it the top of Amna? And why is it the top of Shinar and Hermon? What, what is the purpose of, of relating to these geographical locations? But it's not so much about focusing on them. No doubt they had a, a certain significance that, that is being drawn from. But the real purpose, beloved, is that he is calling her from a place of danger to himself. Look at it again. Follow and see what the Lord is saying to his people. Come with me or come to me from Lebanon, my spouse. From Lebanon, look from the top of Amna, from the top of Shinar and Hermon, from the lion's dens, from the mountains of the lepers. Come away from a place of danger. The scripture elsewhere notes that what this kind of danger is in terms of depicting it as lions, dens, and mountains of the leopards. The psalmist in Psalm 57 verse 4 records, My soul is among lions, and I lie even among them that are set on fire, even the sons of men, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword." The psalmist described his dwelling among lions. And the lions that he referred to were hostile sinners. Those in opposition that would destroy the soul of the believer if they could. And this is again the significance of this passage. As the the Lord calls his church away from a position of danger. Getting them out of the world. Not in the sense that they are removed from the world altogether, but they are removed and preserved from the dangers of the world. Is this not what he prayed in John 17? I pray not that thou should take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from evil. And we are to pray every day, are we not? Deliver us from evil. This instruction is correlating with this verse. That it is the Lord's desire to preserve us. He knows we face a battle and dangers every day. He's well aware that there's an enemy who torments your soul. He is after you relentlessly. He pursues. Sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's less obvious. But let me tell you, when you walk out that door every week, you're going into a world that is hostile where the enemy roars against you, and where people who hate Christ would, whether they're even conscious of it or not, it's not that everyone is, abs- is thinking and planning and plotting the destruction and downfall of every Christian. But there's definitely this hostility that abides within the heart of the unregenerate and sometimes manifests itself in seeking to destroy the people of God. Now, we are naive if we neglect that and ignore it. And this is why we're careful with our children. This is why we are to be careful with our children. We're not to just throw them out into a world unprepared, where they're not ready to face a world that is bent on destroying them. There's this desire that we we try to train them up, we try to disciple them, we try to instruct them, we try to instill the Word of God, our values, Christian values, Christian conviction, Help them to see the world through the lens of a Christian worldview, the perspective as it is from Christ, and realize, help them realize that they're about to step into a world, and we need to help them realize this. We need to make sure that we, we are teaching them about more and more about, about the, the vicious 
spirit and attitude of a world that hates Christ. And by the wisdom and help of God, preparing them more and more as they grow and develop so that they are soldiers ready and prepared for battle. That they head out into the world expecting a warfare, expecting attack upon their soul, expecting the devil to do his level best. Christ is concerned for the safety of his church. Even as parents, we should be concerned and no doubt are concerned for the safety of our children. But then that, that brings us to consider then, well, what, are, what way are we living and aligning with this? Are we throwing ourselves into the path of evil? Are we giving ourselves to those things that the devil utilizes to draw people away? Are we involved in, and, and filling our minds with things that, that are designed just bit by bit to destroy? People don't just listen to one secular song and imbibe the worldview of the song. They listen to it repeatedly and they listen to similar songs with similar themes and they begin to imbibe the worldview. You say, well, music it doesn't really influence people, only if they want it to. That's an absolute lie and you're so naive. And you can see people listen to a certain type of music actually begin to look a certain way. You wonder, well, why? There's, there's something that's going along with all of this. And you may say, well, it's, it's, they just want to be identified with those. And we can argue about the, the philosophy behind it all and the reasons for it all. But the simple fact is this. That those that hate Christ are not uplifting the Savior. And they're presenting a worldview that denies it. We read about it. They, 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 they're fools who have said there is no God. And while the expression of it may come in all various forms... <laughs> Yet the heart and foundation is the same, is to get people to doubt the reality of God and our obligation to Him. And so we have young people who get led astray, and the parents wonder why. And all you have to, all you have to look at is, from where are they feeding? What's on their... What are they listening to? I was going to say iPods. They don't even use iPods anymore. On their phones. What are they listening to? What are they watching? You think Disney doesn't have a worldview? You think it's just, just, just stories? You think there aren't underlying, Christ-rejecting, God-hating worldviews? And again, I'm not here to say that you, you eliminate all these things all the time. But I'll tell you, if you, if, you put, if, <laughs> if you put your children in front of it every day or regular enough that they're imbibing the words and memorizing the words and it begins to bed in to the point that 20 years later they could sing it word for word just like the first time they watched it or the first year that they were watching it. There's a worldview being bedded in and that's militating against Christ. And the Lord is concerned. He calls us away from the lion's dens. Oh, why are we even found there? Who wants to be found where the lions live and where the lepers live? But, but this can happen. In our ignorance and naivety, we can be found in a place of danger. And Christ calls us away. He is concerned for the church's safety. 
Secondly, he is captivated by her beauty. He is captivated by her beauty. Verse 9. Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes, with one chain of thy neck. There are some passages that are easier to explain than they are to comprehend. And that's what I thought when I read this. I can explain this. I can explain the significance of the language, but I cannot fully understand it. As the bridegroom articulates his love for his bride, he uses language that should cause us to just pause and think about it seriously. Thou hast ravished my heart. Christ says to his church, Thou hast ravished my heart. And don't be kind of stumble at my sister, my spouse. Sister is just a sense of the quality of their position and in fact even spiritually. The Baptist preacher John Gill says the church may be called Christ's sister because of his incarnation in virtue of which he is not ashamed to call his people his brethren. They know that from Hebrews. And so there is this, this, this relationship that exists between them in terms of a mutual humanity. But I'm focusing here on the, on the focus of the text. Thou hast ravished my heart. Thou hast ravished my heart. It's repeated. Thou hast taken my heart. There's a sense even with this language that I'm no longer in control of my heart. You have taken it. You have taken my heart. It no longer belongs anywhere else. It belongs in your hands. Now anyone who's ever fallen into love and we all go through that in different ways I suppose. Sometimes people fall hard and they thought life was fine that they were quite content being single and you know there was an element of contentment at least and then someone comes along, <laughs> their life they feel will never be the same again. It's like they've just taken the very essence of their being. A moment can hardly pass, but that person is not in their mind. That's the language that is expressed here. As I say, I can, I can explain it. I can explain it theologically. I can tell you about the fact that everything the Son of God does is for his people. When he entered into a covenant with the Father, when you have what's known as the covenant of redemption, this, this covenant where he takes on the responsibility to represent his people, when he assumes that responsibility to be the head of his people, when he takes on and says that their sins... I will take upon myself my righteousness. I will credit to them. And all the work that's necessary from beginning to end, from eternity past to eternity future, even now, still yet, we have the mediator, the God-man in heaven, still 
taken up with every moment of eternity thinking about his people. I can explain that theologically. I can tell you that's, that's the reality. You read through Scripture, you can see it, that we're chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 verse 4. That everything Christ does, everything in His incarnation, in His time upon the earth, in His death, in His resurrection, in His ascension to the right hand of the Father, it's all for His people. Not one thing had, was He doing that was somewhat detached from the needs of His people. Every single moment had this, this funneled focus that it's all about redeeming the elect. Bringing them to be with me where I am that they may behold my glory. It is all. And, and you just stop there and you think about and you, That humbles you. That humbles you that the Son of God, praised by the hosts of heaven in all His manifested glory, takes upon him the form of a servant for you and for me and has made sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him that he is treated as a criminal on a Roman cross and the wrath of God poured upon his soul he suffers judgment and your hell I can explain it I can go through the passages and show it to you but still, I fail to understand that, I, that for the church, as he looks at the church, it has stolen his heart. What is there in any one of us? Individually or collectively, as the, as the entire universal church, what is in any one of us? even in a collective fashion, that would, would ravish, steal away the heart of the Son of God. I can't understand that. He lives in eternity, perfectly satisfied, in communion with the Father and the Spirit. No discontentment. No prodigal spirit. Perfect contentment through all eternity. But his heart is ravished. His heart is stolen by his people. Oh, that the Lord would help us to know what that means. You see, when he repeats it, Thou hast ravished my heart, with one of thine eyes. The eye is the organ through which the church sees Christ. Spiritually, the eyes of our understanding being enlightened is to see Him. It is the expression of faith. The eye. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God. And there is none else. Christ calls people to look to him. Look and live. And the sense here. Thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes. That is even with, with a sideward glance. 
where you only see one eye, my heart is taken. This is Christ's response to even the slightest faith-filled gaze upon him. That when we see him, when we look to him, even at times with hearts filled with doubt, but there's, there's enough, there's enough of a spirit-born faith that looks with a desire to be saved, he can't ignore it. His heart is drawn out. It wins him over. It takes all of his attention, all of his strength, all of his power. He says, I am yours. I am yours. You have all of me. Even one glance, you have all of me. I can explain it. I don't understand it. How many times our eyes are upon things where they ought not to be. How many times then we, we run in repentance. We run in repentance to the foot of the cross to confess our sins. And we wonder, will he accept us? Will he forgive us? Will he forgive me this morning? If ever I felt unworthy in coming to the Lord's table, it certainly feels that way this morning. Can I come? Can I? Will I be accepted? Can I? Can I? Can I partake of this? One, just, just one of thine eyes, just one slight momentary gaze of affection, adoration, repentance, desire, and Christ comes running in. You have all my heart. And one chain of thy neck. We thought about the chains that she wears back in chapter 1, verse 10. Thy neck, thy cheeks are comely with rows of jewels, thy neck with chains of gold. There's a comeliness. And we said back then that, you know, chains are not an inherent beauty. They're, they're placed upon one. They're something that is put on someone to make them more beautiful. And you think then about the, the look of one eye or the one chain of her neck and that beauty that he sees in her. It, it, it relates to two different facets of what takes the Lord's heart. One relates to our justification and what we are in Christ. That's the eye, the look of faith. And the other to our sanctification, what Christ produces in us by his Spirit. 
what he makes beautiful about our appearance that was not there by nature. And so he expresses here such a love that should astonish every last one of us. We can't begin to understand that he is captivated by her beauty. Thirdly, he is comforted by her reciprocity. He is comforted by her reciprocity. She reciprocates her feelings in several ways. And you see that in verse 10 and following. We see, first of all, her care. See what he says? How fair is thy love, my sister, my spouse. How fair is thy love. She is reciprocating a love and a care for him. He sees that. He says, how fair is thy love. The love of the people of God for Christ is fair to him. It's attractive to him. He is, he is drawn to it. How fair is that I love? It doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like it, ought, it is what it ought to be. And certainly there are scriptures that would show us that, again, we may leave our first love. And we are called to repent and do the first works. And this is the Lord's letter to his church. This is what he writes to his people. This is how he instructs them when he, when he sees them drifting into danger, when he beholds them there among the lions and the lepers, and he says, no, no, no. No, don't, don't leave your first love. Repent and do the first works. It is your love I look for. I want that reciprocated. How fair is thy love, my sister, my spouse. How much better is thy love than wine? She also stated this about him back in chapter 1, verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for thy love is better than wine. So she sees that in him, that his love is better than wine. And we understand that. We understand how his love is better than wine, because his love supersedes everything. Everything about him is better than anything that it could be compared to. But what about her love? How is her love better than wine? How can it be true of her what is true of him? And why is it so appreciated by him? Well, I was thinking about wine, thinking about its significance in terms of the gospel, thinking about the drink offering that was utilized in the Old Testament that would be poured out with a burnt offering. And speaking of the drink offering, Andrew Bonner said, quote, it was a right superadded to express the worshiper's hearty concurrence in all that he saw done at the altar. It was added to express the worshiper's hearty concurrence in all that he saw done at the altar. And the drink offering, therefore, was significant because it expressed the affections behind the actions. That I'm offering the offering for my sin. But there's this added offering, the drink offering that is being added because of the delight the soul has in what the Lord is doing for them in the acceptance of the offering on behalf of them in light of their sin. And so there's a joy about it. But no doubt there were Israelites that would perform the drink offering just because this is what some people would do. They would bring their wine, they'd pour it out and they would do it mechanically. 
just like every other religious rite and act. And this is why her love is better than wine. Because Christ is moved by the love, not the wine. Just as obedience is better than sacrifice, so the affections that drive our actions are more significant than the act itself. Thou desirest truth in the inward parts. I'm looking for the inward manifestation. It's not, it's not even so much about the outward sacrifices. David understood that in Psalm 51. Thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. But a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. It's the inward feelings and affections. It's how the soul looks to Christ. That feeling is what matters. And so it's not about just a drink offering or anything that she can present. It's, it's her, it's her love that matters. It's your love, child of God, that matters to Christ. Your love. Your love for Christ. You come to the table of the Lord, the question is, lovest thou me? Lovest thou me? That's, it's the response to that that matters. Lovest thou me? Not asking, are you, are you diligent? Are you obedient? Are you... Not asking about your position, your status in the church, or anything you're involved with. I'm not asking that. I'm not asking you, Peter, are you an apostle? I'm not asking you, are you ready to preach? I'm asking you, first and foremost, lovest thou me? This is what draws the Lord out after his church. Because among all the sons of men, what identifies the real, the genuine, the true people of God, what separates them from all the mass of humanity, it is their love for Christ. Millions gather under the banner of the Christian faith. Millions go through various acts and performances that express the Christian faith. But the question, the question that comes to us and we need to be, be able to answer from the heart that there is, there, there exists within me a true, a genuine, a spirit-given love for Christ. This is what he looks for. This is what ravishes his heart. Faith and the affections generated thereby. How fair is thy love, my sister, my spouse. So you see your care. 
See also her character. Verse 10, again, the smell of thine ointments, then all spices. Again, he, this is better than wine as well. The smell of thine ointments is better than all spices. Verse 11, the end of that verse it talks about the smell of her garments. It's like the smell of Lebanon. And the point really is about, about the, the smell. There's a smell that she has, an aroma, a scent that he gets from her. And this is produced by the ointments. Thinking about how the church has a certain scent, a certain aroma. Why has the church a certain aroma about it? I think it's illustrated for us very helpfully in the consecration of the, of the high priest, which we have in Psalm 133, where we have it recorded, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. There's an ointment that is poured upon the high priest, and it, it offers its smell, offers its scent. But you see how it is likened, that the high priest and the anointing of the high priest is likened to the representation of a unified church. That the entire body of Christ are represented in this way. And of course, Aaron, Aaron's just signifying the great high priest, even Christ himself. It is in him, therefore, that the brethren enjoy a sweet unity. And that unity is produced by nothing less than the Spirit of God, reflected here in the ointment that had it scent. And so when you consider her and her smell, what is the smell? What is the scent that he detects off her? What is it that is attractive to him that he can, he can sense from her garments and by her very person? Is it not the sweet work and activity of the Spirit of God upon her life? There's a very real sense in which the Holy Ghost in the life of a believer is what makes all the difference in terms of the sweetness of their character. It is the Holy Ghost. There's a foul smell that comes from the ungodly who, who live against God and against His ways, a stench to the life, like the prodigal dwelling among swine, you smell like swine. And that's what the world smells like. It's not pleasant. They're out there giving themselves to sin, debauchery, violence, corruption, every sort of deceit under the sun. And there's nothing nice about it. It shouldn't be attractive to us. And it's not attractive to Christ. Christ isn't drawn to people for what they are. He's drawn to people for what they can be in Him. It is their union to Him that matters. And He goes after souls to draw them in and change them so that they begin to offer up a perfume of the aroma of the Spirit of God in their lives. And wherever they go, you can, you can almost tell. They walk out of your presence and you say... I think that woman's a Christian. There's a distinction in the life. A sweetness in how they live. And this is attractive to the Lord. He is drawn out after this. 
He wants to see the activity of the Spirit that He sends, that He commands, that He issues into the life of everyone that is regenerate. And He wants to see the fruit of that. Thirdly then, her conversation. We have also here her conversation. And he is comforted by not only her care and her character, but her conversation. For verse 11 says, Thy lips, my spouse, O my spouse, drop as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under thy tongue. The words used to describe her lips are honeycomb, honey, and milk. All these terms are used in relation to the Word of God and wholesome speech. Speaking of the Word of God, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2 verse 2, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word, that ye may grow thereby. The psalmist in Psalm 19 verse 10 speaks of the Word of God, the law of God, that they are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. There's a sweetness. And even general speech, Proverbs 16, verse 24, pleasant words are as in honeycomb, sweet to the soul and health to the bones. So it's not just the Word of God, but even just the general speech. Pleasant words are as in honeycomb, sweet to the soul and health to the bones. You know that. (laughs) People come critically and say harsh words and it's not easy to take. It certainly isn't pleasant. But words that that are true and sincere and right and come with a, a desire to encourage and put strength into the life, they are pleasant. They're like honeycomb, health to the bones. And what what is attractive then about her are these characteristics in terms of her lips. Now, he's, he's already talked about that in verse 3. Thy lips are like a thread of scarlet. So we dealt with that already and we, we talked about how the lips and how, uh, how they're used to express the gospel. The lips, like a thread of scarlet, there's a redness there because she's speaking of the blood of Christ, the atoning work of Christ. So, so we have there in terms of her issuing the word of God. And so it is even here, you know, the milk and the, the honey and so on. But, but I want to think just for a moment about the general speech, not, not the actual speaking of the gospel, but how the Lord wants all of our words to be attractive to him. The ungodly, you see, abuse the gift of speech. They do. Psalm 5, verse 9. There's no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is very wickedness. Their throat is an open sepulcher. They flatter with their tongue. None of this is, brings any delight to the Lord. And this is brought out then whenever, and I found it interesting reading the psalm this morning, Psalm 53, from which the Apostle Paul draws heavily in the middle of Romans chapter 3, when he's talking about the condition of the unbeliever, that they don't know God, and so on and so forth. And right there, in the heart of that, we're told in Romans 3.13, also about them, their throat is an open sepulcher, and their tongues, they have used deceit. With their tongues, they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Now again, look at the text. What does it say? It says, honey and milk are under thy tongue. What's under the tongue of the unbeliever? The poison of asps is under their lips. Similar expressions, similar themes, only instead of it being sweet 
milk and honey is the poison of asps. It is the, the venom of the serpent. Which means their speech is used by the devil. It's under the control of the evil one. Just like the beginning coming in, hath God said, the poison of asps is under his lips. It's designed to destroy, designed to kill. And this is the unbeliever, this is how they live. That's what's illustrated without taking time in turning to Romans chapter 3. That's how they use their tongue. And this is why even as parents, we have to put an emphasis upon the speech of our children. They, they should not be allowed to get away with speaking in a way that highlights the, the, the corruption of the world. But at the same time, beloved, let us realize that, that that flows from a heart. And it's the heart where the change needs to take place. And we need to be praying to God and depending upon God for the, for the transformation of the heart that will change the speech. Make it like honey and milk. And so we are exhorted over and over again. Ephesians 4.29 Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. All that, we, all that, that was kind of stumped everywhere we looked we thought about talking or speaking and using our speech that we thought, am I ministering grace? Is this good to the use of edifying? Colossians 4, 6, Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. And I was thinking about this. I was thinking about one way in which we very often show the ugliness of our fallen nature. Instead of the beauty of regenerating grace from the church, one way we are constantly falling in this is in relation to our speech. Thy lips, O oh my spouse, drop as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under thy tongue. I have often encouraged you to read the larger catechism to help you, especially relating to the Ten Commandments, to help you see your own sin. I'm going to read just, just a little excerpt from the middle of question 145, which asks, what are the sins forbidden in the Ninth Commandment? This is just a part of it. I'm going to read it slowly. We're coming to the Lord's table. We have sins to confess. And I'll read this, and you'll realize you have even more to confess. We need the sanctifying grace of the Spirit of God so desperately on our speech. What, what is our Christian testimony if grace and the power of the Spirit does not control the tongue? Here are the sins, some of them. Speaking the truth, unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end. Think about that when you use social media. 
think you're fighting the good fight? Or are you speaking the truth unseasonably? Is it really the place for it? Is it really the time for it? Speaking the truth unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end or perverting it to a wrong meaning or in doubtful or equivocal expressions to the prejudice of the truth or justice. Speaking untruth, lying, slandering, backbiting, detracting, tail-bearing, whispering, scoffing, reviling, rash, harsh, and partial censuring, misconstructing intentions, words, and actions, flattering, vainglorious boasting, thinking or speaking too highly or too meanly of ourselves or others, denying the gifts and graces of God, aggravating smaller faults, hiding, excusing, or extenuating of sins when called to a free confession, unnecessary discovering of infirmities. You don't really need to know everybody's business. If you need to know, then you'll know. Raising false rumors, receiving and countenancing evil reports, even giving time to them, and stopping our ears against just defense, evil suspicion, envying or grieving at the deserved credit of any, endeavoring or desiring to impair it, rejoicing in their disgrace and infamy, and so on. Here here is how the church is to look. Thy lips, O my spouse, drop as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under thy tongue. And the Lord, the Lord is drawn out. He is drawn out after her. He has a sincere and real and undeniable love for her. Look at his feelings. As you sit at the Lord's table this morning, beloved, I want you to think about this. I want you to think soberly and be encouraged by the reality that he is ravished. His heart is taken by the slightest look of faith and love towards him. In other words, he is not cold and indifferent. He doesn't stand off. He doesn't keep his distance. What what person ravished does that? They want to be as close as is possible. And therefore, when we come to the table, is that not an expression of it? Has the Lord not appointed it to show, I want to be close to you. I want you to be close to me. 
to sit at the table, to sit together and consider what I have done, to revel in the victory of the cross and to be put, to put away all concerns that he has fallen out of love, that he has forgotten you, that he no longer is concerned for you. He is as much concerned as ever he was. His love today is equal to his love when he decides, I'm going to the cross. The love that kept him there when by his omnipotence he could break free, that love is still as firm and intense now as ever it has been. Just gaze upon the bleeding lamb, beloved, and see there written in the blood of Christ his love for you. It is assured. May the Lord help us to meditate and consider these things for his name's sake. Let us pray. Our God, we are this morning somewhat taken aback at this passage. We are very, very unworthy. We don't even begin to understand it. But it has pleased thee to call us to thyself. We belong to thee. Thou hast purchased us at great cost, and there's no going back. Thy love is sure and certain, and we pray that we might give a gaze of faith and look to thee in love. And O oh Lord, purify our love for thee. Make it more than it has ever been. Make us reflect what we're to be as those that have been born again by the Spirit of God. As we sit at this table, sweeten the experience with a sense of thy presence and elevate our thoughts to that which is wholesome and cause us to in humility fall at thy feet, confessing our sins and embracing the pardon promised to all that believe. So comfort every soul and feed every soul, we pray in Jesus' name.